On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. You gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire left. Like a path, they clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein, and on the podcast today, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, flight nurse Katie. Katie, it's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, I know you're going to talk a little about a little bit about your progression through nursing school and then eventually becoming a flight nurse, so I'm really excited to hear how you got where you are today and also some of the calls that you've run as a flight nurse. So I'll turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road. Yeah. Hey, Phil. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be doing this. Um, yeah, so my story to becoming a flight nurse, it took me a little bit of time to figure out what I wanted to do, but super glad to be here. Uh, when I graduated high school in 2011, I went to school initially as an art major, completely different from the medical field, but I went as an art major. That wasn't for me. Ended up getting a degree in exercise science. And um, I had some ideas of what I wanted to do, but really wasn't sure. I started working as an aide for a physical therapy clinic, and that was my primary job. I really enjoyed doing that, uh, but also in that time, I found myself as a caregiver to a lot of family members. And as time went on, I was like, I cannot keep doing this job that I'm doing. It doesn't pay. It's not the hours I want to be working. And eventually somebody suggested I go to nursing school. It's like, well, yeah, I'll try because I, I need to be doing something other than what I'm doing right now. And so I went to nursing school, still really had no idea what I wanted to do with nursing. Really wasn't even sure what nursing all entailed. Now that, you know, now that I've been in it, I see all the hats we wear. So uh, through some trial and error, while I was in nursing school and, and talking to different people, I, I got helped to set up with a ride along with 
uh, flight nurse. And from that moment on, I was hooked. I knew exactly that was that was where I belonged in the world. The flight nurse that I was with that day, he was he's fantastic. I'm still close with him. Um, someone I look up to and will reach out to frequently. And it just it changed it changed the whole game for me. So tell me about that that ride along. Tell me, you know, what was the feeling like? You know, what got you hooked? Tell me about that. Because I know, you know, as a firefighter, I know the first time that I went into a building and it was on fire and I was hooked. So tell me what that ride along was like for that fly along was, yeah. was like for you. So, I mean, that was my first time ever being in a helicopter. First of all, I had no idea um, how even just operationally at work. They walked me through it ahead of time just so I'd have a heads up. But see, so I, I did that. It was so exciting. Just first of all, being in the helicopter, getting loaded up, you know, the tones drop, you're, you're, you're doing all the things. And so we fly out and we actually had an EMS rendezvous. So we didn't go to the scene, but it was a a trauma. It was a car accident. And the patient, she was, she was fairly okay. A little bit confused, but no obvious injuries. I just remember seeing the flight crew. They just get in there and it's, it's their show all of a sudden they're autonomous. They're doing what they need to do. Everyone just looks up to them. And I was like, yeah, that's it. That's what I want to do. You know, I, I want to be of that, you know, high status that, and not, you know, of a, you know, of a humble thing, but, but just, I want to be able to be that nurse who can handle anything in any situation by myself. Yeah. It's not a hero complex. Right. It's you want to get in there. You want to make decisions. You want to treat the patient the best you can. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things I really liked about being a paramedic was that autonom- autonomy when you're in the back of the ambulance, making those decisions. And then even sometimes seeing the outcome of those decisions and seeing a patient improve right. because of a good assessment and a good treatment. Right. And so, yeah, so I had that experience and then all the way through with flying the patient then to Pittsburgh. And again, the flight nurse I was with that day was fantastic. He would explain everything to me along the way explaining to me, you know, different vital signs. Cause at that time I was just first semester in nursing school. So I knew very little even about the world that I was being immersed in at that moment. So we, you know, we get the patient and it's the big trauma bay, the trauma surgeons are there, everything is going on. It's all hectic. And again, watching the flight nurse, um, well, and the medic with him, but you know, really shadowing the nurse and he's just calm, cool, collected, doing his thing and really commanding the room. Like everyone is just so respectful of him and what he's doing in that moment. Um, it was fantastic. And, you know, it was really nice too that we got ice cream sandwiches at the end from the EMS room. You can so, never beat a good ice cream sandwich. Oh, yeah. So, so you're a first semester nurse. You, you've gone on this fly along. Mm-hmm. So, how do you get to where you are today? Yeah. So, like I said, from that point, I then did some research. What does it take to become a flight nurse? What requirements do I need to have? And how can I? now go about getting them. So made sure I, you know, re- worked really hard through nursing school, graduated with honors, and I secured myself a job right out of nursing school in the trauma ICU at UPMC Presbyterian. So it's not all ICUs will even hire new grads. So I was really, really fortunate that I was able to get that experience right out the gate. And trauma obviously is having that background is going to be huge when you're flying. I took on that endeavor and Trauma ICU at a level one trauma center is no joke. So I learned so much, really got thrown into the fire there, but it was a great experience. It was just the the most wonderful experience now looking back. So I did that. After a few years, I decided I wanted to see some other things because, you know, in trauma, we just, you don't see everything. You see a lot, but not everything. As a flight nurse, you need to be a jack of all trades. So I decided I really needed to get some more cardiac experience 
but I'd be able to do that a little bit closer to home. So I left uh, that hospital and I came to work down here in Wheeling in the cardiac uh, working CVICU with post open heart patients. And again, I got a great, great amount of experience doing that. And I've worked there up until I accepted the job with uh, Stat Medivac. So now you're flying. Yeah. So now here I am. And I've um, been doing this now about seven months. It has been a, a whole new world. That is for sure. So tell me about some of the calls. You, I know your first call, I remember you telling me about that a while back. That was uh, really, really exciting for you. Tell me about some of the calls you've run. Tell me about the first one. Tell me uh, a little bit about where you are in your the pathway of your career now in, in, in terms of the calls that you've done and, and how you feel about those calls. Yeah. I mean, it's... Um, I mean, man, in the seven months, looking back to like my first day uh, flying, I was so I was so scared. I had no idea. I showed up in my flight suit, all excited, and uh, yeah, I was with my preceptor, who again, um, I had two main preceptors, fantastic people that I still look up to. You know, so we went out on this first run, and I remember it hit me while we were there. Um, they were like, "Well, you can do stuff." <laughs> One of the guys told me, and I was like, "Oh, this is real now." Like this is real. Um, the patient again it, it needed to go to a higher level care, but uh, was not overly sick. And just watching those guys work so seamlessly, but independent at the same time doing different things. Again, it just it hit me like, oh man, okay, I now have eight weeks of orientation to get to that. And my again, my preceptors they they helped me tremendously through that whole process. It was stressful, emotional, but uh, I made it through, got off of orientation with flying colors. So from that point in, in the world that I, I'm in, that means that you go from being the third crew member to now you're the second crew member. And, and typically we have two medical crew members. So a lot of pressure then now put on you as a second crew member. And uh, that's what I've been functioning as for about the last five months. Yeah, so I I remember my very first day then as the second crew member, nervous. I went to a base I've never been to before, working with a partner I've never even met in my life. And I just walked in and I said, look, I came off orientation yesterday. So whatever we need to do, we're going to do it. But that's where I am. And again, he was a, a great guy. We had a couple calls and he was just like, you go do this and I'll do these other things and it'll all work out. And it did. Um, and from that point forward, it's just been, you know, every every time the tones drop, every time you go out, there's there's a, a little pit in my stomach. Uh, I feel pretty nervous, like, okay, what am I going to get into this time? What is it going to be? But every single time afterwards, I can reflect back on it and say, like, well, I got through that. I did that. That's another thing under my belt. So I know when I'm going to encounter something like this again, I'm going to be able to do it. It's not going to be a problem. So let's get into it. Let's talk about some of the some of the calls you, you've run. You know, on the podcast, it's called Stories from the Road, or maybe in this case, Stories from the Air. Uh, but I know the listeners really want to hear about the work that you do. So tell me some of the tell me about some of the calls that you've run. Take me through them. Yeah. So I know um, one of the calls I've had most recently that have really that really took me for a spin. We had this trauma patient. It was a scene run. Fortunately, again for me, I was working with the most senior medic in the company, so I felt really comfortable having him beside me. But we had a scene run and we get there and this patient was a motorcycle accident, no helmet, and it's snowing out. We were like, man, this is not a great choice to be out on your motorcycle, no helmet while it's snowing. But anyway, he's now in front of us 
and he needs an airway. He's not breathing. They're bagging him. He's bleeding um, from his mouth. Nothing, you know, obvious, but there, there's there's some stuff going on. So uh, right now we're in a study where we don't intubate our trauma patients on first pass. Uh, we're doing eye gels, uh, you know, just as part of the study. So for folks that may not know, okay, tell me what an eye gel is. And also, would you do me a favor too and talk about, you said scene run a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Talk about for just a, a minute or two what a scene run is and who else is there so that the listeners have yeah. an idea of what you're encountering when you get on scene. Absolutely. So uh, to clarify scene run, so the two main kind of calls that we go on are inner facility and then scene runs. So an inner facility is when we're taking a patient from one hospital to another for whatever reason, from whatever point A to point B. But that patient could be anywhere, ER, ICU, on the floor. And again, we're taking them to another facility. A scene run is when EMS is calling us and we're going to meet them somewhere. It might be at the scene. It might be another LZ, you know, uh, landing zone location, uh, whatever that might be. So, uh, you know, very different in that sense. When we're going to a hospital, it's it's a little bit more of a controlled environment, although sometimes it's not, <laughs> I've learned, because, uh, you know, you're that patient, you're taking them from usually a smaller hospital with more limited capabilities. So you're walking in and this patient is now way too sick beyond their capabilities. So it can feel like a scene run in, inside the hospital, certainly. And it's just because that, that patient, that hospital has, has maxed it out what they can do. Um, a scene run, you're hopping in the back of an ambulance and they certainly have far, far more limited um, resources at their hands, just, just as the nature of it. So, you know, you're, you're getting in the back of it. Usually there's a fire department there that's helping secure the landing zone. And then you have a medic and an EMT typically in the back of that truck. Um, hopefully you have a medic. Sometimes it's, you know, as we all know in this world, like it's, you're getting in the back there and it's an EMT and an EMT their faces are light up when they see you because they're just so excited that someone is there to help them. Um, so that that's kind of the difference there. And I asked you about uh, intubation versus an eye gel with yeah. the study that you were talking about. Yeah. So um, intubation um, is where we're going to take that tube and it is going to pass all the way through that patient's vocal cords and into their actual airway space. Um, it's much more secure, but it is a higher level skill. An eye gel is it's a device that is also going to be used for an airway. But what it does is it has a kind of a cup on it. You don't have to have direct visualization to be able to put it in like you do with uh, intubation. You're going to put it in and as it absorbs a patient's body heat, it's going to kind of mold a little bit and it will occlude their esophagus and be able to have an opening that will allow air to come right in and out uh, through, through you know, through their trachea to help to be able to help them breathe, and that's ideally. So, with that, it it is a little bit more um, in making sure that you have the right size for the patient, and that goes off of their weight, making sure that you have a good size for them. So, you want to get that in there and um, give it a little time to warm up, to seal, and then you can start oxygenating them pretty well. Okay, so going back to the back to the scene, you were talking about the study, and you're using an eye gel first instead of an ET yeah. tube. We're going ahead. We're going to put the eye gel in. We're still using all of our um, medications that we wouldn't typically use for intubation because you know this patient, he's meeting all the criteria. We're going to have an expected destination at this point of a level one trauma center. Ours probably being uh, Presby at that time, and they're the ones that are one of the main ones that are in this study. So we get the eye gel in and. 
he starts, you know, vitals start looking better. We're like, all right, this is, this is pretty simple, you know, straightforward. We're going to, we're going to do good. So uh, also when we're on a scene run, our aircraft does not shut down. We keep running because it's just not as a secure environment. Right. So my partner says, you stay here with the patient, you know, keep, keep an eye on him. He's going to start taking our equipment back to the aircraft. So that way we can, once we load the patient up, we only have to worry about that stretcher to get him going. Great. So I'm in there, everything is going fine. And my partner makes his last trip back to the aircraft and I see him on his way back. And then I look over at the monitor and the patient starts bradying down. So his heart rate's going, yeah. starting to slow down on so you. So his heart rate's slowing down and then his end title drops as well. And I know in my head what this means. And I look at the medic cause I'm bagging the patient. And I <laughs> said to him, I was like, for fun, can you see if he has a pulse? And he did not. So we're starting CPR on him. And then I look at the EMT and, and trying to stay as calm as possible because panic is probably the most contagious thing out there. I will argue that panic is the most contagious thing out there. So starting to stay calm and, I, and see the EMT over in the corner. And I just look at him and I said, hey, as soon as my partner walks over here, don't jump out. Don't do anything. Just open the door. As soon as my partner walks over, just open the door. He'll see what's going on. And he did. And I said, well, Bill, this is where we are now. Fortunately, we just needed to do one round of CPR for him, uh, one dose of Epi. And we got him back. We got ROSC. So had a heart rate, uh, pulse again, heart rate again. So we don't fly anybody who is in active arrest typically, unless we call and get permission from our doctor. But we don't typically fly anybody that is in active arrest. And is that because of a space issue or is there another reason why? Well, typically because that patient would benefit from going to a hospital, to an emergency room at that point, because whatever is causing them to arrest, they, they may need something a little bit more quickly than what we would be able to get them to. There has been times, however, that I have flown a patient who like, you know, has just come out of this arrest, but it's been situations where I'm, I'm so far out in a rural situation that it literally will be half the time to fly them than it would be to drive to the local community hospital. In this case, we were about like six, seven minute drive from the closest hospital and about 15 minute flight to, uh, to, to Pittsburgh. And that's, that's just flight time. That is not including getting him loaded up onto the stretcher. You know, we were already in the back of the ambulance. So despite the fact that we did get him back, my partner and I, we agreed we wanted to get him to the hospital because he, he probably had some things that he needed to be addressed a little bit more acutely than what we were going to be able to handle. And also pretty good chance that he was going to arrest again on us. Anyway, so we, we make that decision. We're getting moving. And of course he does arrest again on us. And it's just the, the, that classic, his heart rates dropped. And then all of a sudden his end title goes with real, no clear signs prior to that. Sats didn't drop anything. Anyway, so we get him there, we get him to the hospital they start taking care of him. At that point, he is out of our care. He is out of our hands, but we know he's not at a level one trauma center. So if they are able to resuscitate him appropriately, we're going to be taking him anyway. We call our doc. We get approval. We're going to hang out at bedside and wait and see how this goes. He, they do get him back. They resuscitated him with multiple units of blood, multiple units of fluid. He did have a pneumo. So his right chest, um, his right lung had been collapsed. So they were able to put a chest tube in. They also exchanged out that eye gel for an actual intubation, um, just a little bit more secure of an airway, especially, you know, in the situation that he was in. 
you know, so they got him pretty well stabilized and that was great now, but mind you, this is probably about an hour and a half from our initial contact with that patient. So time's, time's going by. So they now want him to be taken to a level one trauma center, which was absolutely the appropriate thing. So we tell him, okay, you fill out this paperwork for us. We're going to get everything loaded up. So we get, we start getting everything moving, everything, you know, in relativeness looks fine. We get him on our stretcher. We're heading upstairs to where the helipad is so we can meet our pilot. We get, so we get up there and we're on the helipad. We're not loaded up yet. And uh, things are just not going well again for this patient. We have him on the ventilator and he is not ventilating at all. His sats haven't dropped, but he is not ventilating. Um, so anybody who's familiar with ventilators, his, uh, his volumes were dropping down to under 100. His, heart, his uh, respiratory rate was not increasing. His peak pressures were not increasing. Just his volumes were less than 100. And I could not figure out what was going on. So I ended up calling our medical director who was on call at the time. And he's walking me through all of these different settings. I'm so nervous. I'm new at this point. And I'm thinking, like, I missed something. I did something wrong. I missed something. So he, again, he's having me go through all of this. We're troubleshooting the chest tube that's already in. And I'm on the phone with him. And he just goes, there is something wrong with this patient. And you need to take him back downstairs to the ER. And it is not very heard of in our world, first of all, to have to take a patient to an ER, let alone twice within one call. So we, we get, we get him back downstairs and that team there at that hospital, just fantastic, jumped right back in helping us. Um, he, ultimately what had happened for this guy is his other lung had collapsed in that short time frame, So he needed another chest tube put, put in on the other side. So, uh, I remember the whole entire time they're doing all these things for this guy. I'm bagging him and I'm just looking over at my partner, like tears, uh, you know, watering up in my eyes. And I'm just like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he looks at me and he was like, you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. This guy is sick. You didn't do anything. And I was like, I just, I was a nurse on this call. I'm supposed to, you know, be able to do X, Y, and Z and it's not going well. And he's like, it's fine. It's fine. Again, we get him stabilized, a little bit resuscitated. And this time we are able to get him loaded up into the aircraft and we get him to Presby, the level one trauma center whole team is there waiting for us. And, um, he had a positive fast exam, which is something they do within the first couple minutes. Anyone who's not familiar with that, it's just, they take an ultrasound to a couple particular points on someone's abdomen. And if it shows fluid, that's pretty indicative of that. They have some sort of internal bleeding. So they're not going to mess around with anything else. They're going to take them straight to the OR, which is exactly what happened in that case. Took them right to the OR and, I was just happy to have him out of my hands at that point. And I was like, I knew the chart was going to be difficult. I knew everything was going to be difficult, but happy to have him out of my hands. End up getting a little bit of follow-up on him after the fact. And he had ended up on ECMO within 24 hours of his injuries. So again, anybody who's not familiar with that, it's where they're going to take a machine. They're going to, uh, it looks like garden hoses. These tubes are so big. Garden hoses um, that goes into your vein, major veins. And they're going to take, you know, uh, circulate your blood through this machine. And it essentially works as similar to your lungs to oxygenate the blood. Um, it's a very invasive. You don't want to be in that. You don't want to be in that situation to be on it. It's, it's not good. So within 24 hours, he had to end up on that because his lungs had been so damaged uh, through, through his, uh, you know, his wreck, what he went through. But they said then 
I, I saw, I saw end up seeing the same trauma surgeon two weeks later, just passing by, bringing a patient in and asked him like, Hey, you know, by chance, do you remember this, this guy, what happened to him? And he looked at me and he's like, yeah, he is off of ECMO. He is awake. He is following commands. And my, I think I had to pick my jaw up off the drawer, off the floor. I did not expect that guy to make it whatsoever. And he looked at me and he said, whatever you did, keep doing it. And that just made me feel so good because after that whole, it took us in total four hours from initial contact to get that guy to a level one trauma center. And I just kept thinking to myself, I'm missing something. I'm messing something up. That's why this situation keeps playing out. And the more and more time that we are keeping him from the OR, his his chances of mortality are just increasing every single minute that I, I am not able to get him to this to this facility. And uh, then once I heard, like I said, he was on ECMO, it's like, yep, that's that's it. He, you know, he really did it. And then hearing hearing that from a the trauma surgeon, it, it felt really great. Yeah, especially coming from a call that you said earlier that you you felt like you weren't doing things right, or you mm-hmm. you so new at it, and this was your fault, or you know, and then having such a great outcome that that's got to be a, a great feeling. So. I'm going to have you back on the podcast to talk about some other stories. But as sure. we start to wrap this episode up, tell me, uh, tell me what you're going to do next. What, what are you going to do now? Are you going to fly for a while or what's, what's next for you? Yeah. I mean, as of right now, the, the plan is to fly. I have wanted to be a flight nurse for so long that uh, I, I want to take in everything that I can from this experience right now. Um, I'm sure grad school is not out of the picture down the road. But I'm not worrying about that right now. Um, you know, I am in school currently trying to finish my bachelor's in nursing. Um, almost done with that. Really excited um, just because that will open doors down the road. But right now it's focusing on flying, trying to become the best flight nurse that I can, uh, trying to become like these nurse, flight nurses that I've worked with, my preceptors, um, and, you know, just these other people I've worked with who I really look up to. And I want to I want to get to that point. And I heard you teaching a little EMS, too. Yeah, I am. Yeah, uh, pretty new at that as well. But it's exciting and fun. And, um, you know, I, I really am, I don't know if you can tell, really passionate about what I do. I, I really enjoy it. And now given the opportunity to be able to pass that along and, you know, maybe even kind of instill some of that passion into some other folks. Um, that'd be really great. I'm really excited for it, for the opportunity. Well, good. Well, Katie, thanks for coming on the podcast and, and thanks for sharing one of your flight stories and then also your path to become a flight nurse. I'm sure anybody that's listening that has aspirations of flying, whether as a, a nurse or a medic, um, will probably get a whole lot out of this episode and, and certainly come back. I know you have a, a pocket full of stories to share and, and you're only picking up more every day that you go to work. Um, so definitely come back on the podcast and, and let's talk more about some of the patients that you encounter and some of the work that you do in the air. Um, I don't often get a chance to speak to flight nurses or, or medics, so um, it's great to have you as a resource. And, and I, I will certainly keep sharing your stories because I think it's interesting work and I think people are very curious about what you do. So thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me here. It's, it's been fun and I really look forward to it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you enjoy. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. Show notes are written by Jennifer Rowick. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this show, 
please visit storiesfromtheroadpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.